Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Friday. You made it through the week. We wake up this morning and find out that the the jobs numbers are a huge miss, uh, way below expectations. People are going to, of course, uh, rush to their their corners and uh, you know explain why, of course, uh, this confirms all of their prior beliefs. Uh, and of course, the crazy continues to spread, which seems to be a, a constant theme here. You have uh, not only in, in Arizona, the ongoing audit that's still looking for uh, bamboo, evidence of bamboo in the ballots, which we discussed yesterday. And now we learn that the Michigan House Republicans have invited, of all people, Naomi Wolf uh, to testify uh, about her expertise in Lord knows what. I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't spend any time with this. So joining me on our podcast today, David Frum, a senior writer for The Atlantic, all-around guru and pundit, uh, and a target of Tucker Carlson. So good morning and welcome back, David. Hey, thank you for the return invitation. Well, um, and by the way, congratulations on being fully vaccinated. Before we began, you were mentioning that uh, you you and your wife have gotten your lives back. Yes, we are. Uh, just after we finish this recording, my, uh, Danielle and I are going to get on a train and go to New York City uh, and go to restaurants and have dinner with friends. And because there's a tendency to get, you know, the vet opens the cage and the dog doesn't walk out because he's been yeah. in the cage so long. So we're trying to bust up our routine to develop new habits to replace the old habits we accumulated during COVID. I oh, see. I think that's a great idea. And I'm, as I was telling guy, I've been fully vaccinated for more than a month and, and I, I still find myself resisting doing those things. And maybe I need to do what, what, what you're talking about is finding some way to really break, uh, break up the, the habits because those habits have been so deeply ingrained I mean, it's yeah. been a it's been a year of not going anywhere, not doing anything, sort of having the reflex that, well, I'm not going in that place. Well, why not? If you're fully re if you're fully vaccinated, you know, it's the future's now. Well, the, the genius of science, um, the incredible uh, resources and mighty productivity of this country have um, enabled us all um, who take the vaccines to return to acceptable levels of risk. And we mustn't allow our own fears to push us to demand zero levels of risk. Um, you know, uh, right. it, we, uh, the, there's a report that um, Chinese space rubble is going to start falling to earth uh, tonight. Mm -hmm. Does one not walk the dog around the block because you're afraid a piece of Chinese missile might conk you on the head? Um, you know, that's a risk. Risk is all about acceptability. And I, I think um, the scientists have done their part. The vaccinators have done their part. Now we have to do our part and, and go back to returning to life. That's And that's maybe the secret to fixing these job numbers is a, a just enough people have to make up their mind that we had rational things to fear. Now, as Franklin Roosevelt said, we are fearing, we, you know, we have to fear fear itself. Fear itself is the problem. Well, speaking of irrational, um, that's that's a nice segue to talk about um, what's going on in, in 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 Washington. I know we've spent time on the podcast talking about uh, Liz Cheney, but I am really struck by how disingenuous so much of the commentary is. the uh, The argument that well, Liz Cheney's real crime is she's distracting us from our main job, which is attacking the Biden administration. When of course this coup against her is the biggest distraction. And the other point that you see over and over again that well, the problem with Liz Cheney is she just won't let it go. She just keeps talking about it, which is, David, highly ironic since the guy sitting down in Mar-a-Lago talks about it incessantly. He won't yeah. let it go. This is this is the, the constant theme. So 
the argument is we need to move on. But getting rid of Liz Cheney is sort of an indication that the Republican Party is terrified of quitting Donald Trump, isn't it? Well, also move on in which direction? Uh, Liz Cheney is advocating moving on. Liz Cheney um, is saying, uh, let's accept that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election as the Republican Party got crushed in 2018, as it lost in Georgia the very day before the attack on the Capitol, the Republican Party, as it has lost the popular vote in every election since the Cold War except 2004. Let's move on from that and find a future that is grounded in reality. That's what she's saying. The other people are actually are saying, we want to move on to become a post-democratic party, a party in which taking part in a violent attack on Congress is not a big deal, um, in which corruption is not a big deal, in which we will never, we, we want to collaborate in never ascertaining the truth about what Donald Trump did. We never want to, we want to never find out exactly how much uh, the taxpayers spent uh, on Do- uh, Donald Trump resorts. We want to help him cover that up too. They, they all, uh, it's, it's a question of direction. Uh, that Liz Cheney is the one offering a real direction. There's a real possibility here of a different turn. In American politics. 2020 offered Republicans a lot of hope. We saw this swing of Latino voters into the mm-hmm. into the Republican Party. Um, and this, I mean, the, the, of course, the Democrats still won a majority of the Latino vote, but a much smaller majority than expected. We see the possibility of new formations. Yet, if you, to reach those new formations, you have to get past Trump. She wants to do it, and the rest of the party is in- insisting instead on retaining Trump, making him um, the touchstone of loyalty. And of course, it looks like she's going to be replaced by Elise Stefanik, who is really an extraordinary political figure. She was elected as a moderate. She was a protege of Paul Ryan. Uh, She voted against Trump on a whole bunch of things. She actually voted against the Trump tax cut. But today, it's and I I see a lot of uh, punditry about how uh, loyalty to Donald Trump is now the litmus test. But I, I think that understates it because it's not just loyalty to Trump. It's very specifically loyalty to the big lie about the election. And uh, it's interesting, you know, Elise Stefanik keeps doubling down on on all of this. Uh, she's, uh, you know, she, she said that she endorsed efforts to overturn the election. She voted to uh, not certify the electoral votes. Uh, she's, you know, falsely claimed that Georgia eliminated voter verification. She actually claimed there were 140,000 illegal votes in Fulton. She raised concerns about Dominion. I mean, she is all in on pushing these fake, uh, you know, the the, the fake uh, conspiracy theories about the election, and yet she's and she's the rising star. Uh, it's it, it it she she is 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 an interest is an extraordinary phenomenon in the Republican Party in and of herself, isn't she? Well, uh, she, she really uh, she is making some very interesting bets, and one of the reasons she's such a fascinating character is because she's obviously just such a big bag of zero content um, because she, she's so cynical and, and believes in nothing um, that, that, that really is um, that's the tell. I mean, it's, I mean, it, in a way, I mean, you don't have to explain Marjorie Taylor green. Um, right. There are, there are nutcases. There are a certain number of them, and, and they show up in Congress from time to time. And you don't have to explain the real fanatics and the real racists and the real bigots. What's interesting is when, when um, the opportunists, the people who believe in nothing, start betting on Donald Trump. And I think she's also making a second complicated bet. Um, so New York is to lose a um, congressional seat after the uh, mm-hmm. 2021 redistricting. And of course, Democrats control the redistricting process in the state of New York, and they can choose which Republican they eliminate. And they have an interesting choice. They can eliminate 
they could easily eliminate her district in upstate New York near Fort Drum, or they can eliminate one of the downstate Republicans, um, you know, in Staten Island or Long Island. Um, I think she is also calculating that if she becomes a visible enough face of Trump, it will be convenient to the Democrats to keep her in business. Mm, Interesting. That they will eliminate one of the downstate Republicans and keep her because they like, they also, for their own reasons, like the brand she is giving to the Republican Party. Well, the the brand is this, as you point out, this incredible cynicism where she has she's turned one eighty on on Trump. She used to denounce him. She, she again, she used to be you know the face of a very very different uh, uh, you know stream in the Republican Party, and now she is all in. I mean, she is all in. I mean, it's the it's the naked opportunism. It's the naked symmetry. And as somebody pointed out, though, you know, we've seen this from other folks, including Lindsey Graham, and so far, n- no nobody has ever paid a price for this. It's like we have no memory. Well, um, one of the things that um, a crooked leader wants is crooked followers. That he doesn't, that Donald Trump doesn't want real true believers um, of the, uh, Mm -hmm. um, interesting. Because real true believers, uh, 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 in a a way that like Steve Bannon, um, Steve Bannon was a true believer in a certain brand of extremist anti-democratic politics. But because he is a true believer, he actually has ideas and loyalties of his own. And he might not say, Mr. Trump, whatever you say, Mr. Trump, I agree, Mr. Trump. Um, Whereas the craven weaklings, um, the people who believe in nothing, the Lindsey Grahams, you know, if Donald Trump tomorrow, I mean, this is, we were going to talk shortly about about Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Tucker Carlson could tomorrow become America's leading advocate of vaccination. I mean, he could do that without and and then he'd get indignant if you ever said he had ever. I mean that because there is no content that makes them more adaptable. And crooked leaders like adaptable followers. Um, it, it's the way that um, you know. In the same way, Stalin killed all the authentic communists and replaced them with apparatchiks because the authentic communists might have had ideas independent of Stalin. So that's a great that's that's a great lead into to, uh, to the next soundbite that I wanted to play for you. Um, Elise Stefanik, who is you know clearly uh, about to be uh, you know crowned as the as, as the next uh, House Conference Chair, uh, is, is campaigning for the job, and for reasons that are not completely clear to me, uh, decided to go on Steve Bannon's show. And so it's not just that, and, and again, I you know part of the I, I don't want to use the word ironic too much, but you know the the charge against uh, Liz uh, Liz Cheney is that she won't stop talking about uh, the the coup and about the the big lie about the election, and yet here's Elise Stefanik going on Steve Bannon's show to continue to relitigate the election, and not just in in general terms, very specifically. She is enthusiastically endorsing that complete, cringely bogus audit down in Arizona. Here's a little bit of uh, of Elise Stefanik uh, kissing up to Steve Bannon yesterday. I fully support support the audit in Arizona. We want transparency and answers for the American people. What are the Democrats so afraid of? Uh, The voters in Arizona and the state Senate in Arizona pursued this audit. I fully support it. Transparency is a good thing. We need to fix these election security issues going into the future. And there she is. So, David, from what what is Elise Stefanik doing other than signaling her absolute abject loyalty to Trump and all of his obsessions and conspiracy theories about the election. Um, she's uh, looking for a new donor base 
um, on the the wilder fringe. Uh, I think one of the things that that forward looking Republicans are getting ready for is that they may become rather unacceptable um, to uh, political action committees and corporate giving, but that may not matter because uh, the internet has shown us the power of the small giver. There's always been a lot of um, common cause fetishization of the small donor. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the, the, the the sacredness of the person who gives $200 versus the evilness of the person who gives $2,000. My view has always been the person who gives a candidate $2,000 is acting for rational reasons. They want this or that change in railway regulations. They've got this or that concern. They want access. I mean, it's, it's not wholesome, but it's they're not a nut. Uh, the person who gives $200 to a candidate is almost certainly a fanatic. <laughs> and they're they the people who are driving American politics. They give to Bernie. They give to Trump. They, they've, they, they've got some monomaniacal cause out of which they get nothing. They, they're not there seeking some break on railway regulation. So I, well, the reason I wanted you back on the podcast this week was also to talk about uh, you and Tucker Carlson. And, and I know that we've mentioned Tucker a lot, uh, but of course, Tucker has become now the, the new face of this, of, of what the right has become, and in, including his his ability to, to to morph into other things. So the other day, he is going on, I, you describe it on, on, uh, on your Twitter account as a complicated uh, excuse and justification for the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol anti-vax, pro-insurrection, quite a combination. Um, and he's, he's he's talking about, you know, this woke CIA recruitment video or what he says is, and sort of along the way, he takes a shot at you, just sort of gratuitous, sort of out of nowhere. Let's just play this because you answered this with a very long um, response that I found really interesting and illuminating. But but let's 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 play the uh, the, the cheap shot uh, against you on this in, in the middle of this, this sort of randomly in the middle of uh, one of Tucker's uh, monologues. In real life, they understand perfectly well what actually threatens America. They've seen it up close. It's the culture that produced them. It's the decadent rich people from their class at Harvard. It's the gender studies department at Cornell. It's the cat cafes in Austin and Asheville. It's the Monday editorial meetings at the Atlantic magazine, where David Frum is treated like an important intellectual rather than some dopey middle-aged Canadian Twitter celebrity (laughs) whose life goal is to force America into yet another unwinnable, pointless war. Those are the people who actually detest the country. They're the ones who are working through the night to destroy it. They're the people who are committed to and in the process of excusing violence. So thank you, by the way, for getting up early since you've been working through the night to destroy America, <laughs> David. But OK, I'm just going to turn it over to you. What the hell? What was that? Well, um, there's a backstory here. So, so uh, I think like you, I've known uh, Tucker Carlson pretty well for more than 20 years. Um, we were never friends exactly, but we, we were Washington friends. We were colleagues on the uh, um, Weekly Standard. Uh, I was a frequent guest on his show when he had one on MSNBC. Um, he's been to you know, th- those d- those dreaded cocktail parties at my house. Um, I have a lot of them. Uh, he's, he was a frequent guest. So we used to lunch together from time to time. Um, and uh, we ran into each other at the Republican convention in 2016 and had a um, you know reasonably um, affable, cor- reasonably cordial uh, conversation. I think that was the last time we spoke face to face. What the, the th- there's a famous novel about uh, Germany's turn to Nazism um, called The Oppermans. And at one point, one of the characters in The Oppermans says, you have to understand that our opponents have an advantage over us, and that is their absolute shamelessness. Mm-hmm. 
And that is, I think, Tucker Carlson's secret power. Um, because like right now, the, the thing just this week, the thing that the hard right is maddest at me about is I wrote an article for The Atlantic about the weaknesses in, in the power of the Chinese state. I mean, the Chinese state is a very malign actor and, and I'm agnostic. They may even indeed be somehow implicated in the release of COVID. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, their attentions are really bad, but I went through the reasons for thinking their power is not as great as it's been made out. And that allows the United States to have a more cautious approach to China. We don't need to be as confrontational. So everyone was mad at me about that. And then um, all of Tucker's friends were mad at me about that. And then hmm. there he is on TV saying, "I want uh, having on one day on I would Thursday attacked me for being not hawkish enough about China that on Tuesday you can attack me for wanting endless wars against everybody else. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but that's the secret power. But the thing I wrote about was this. I mean, it is true. I was an advocate of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and I've written a lot about that, and I accept the responsibility for that. And if you think that was a mistake, I've never disavowed that because I think it's few- once you have taken a public stand and it's had consequences, it doesn't it's cowardly to then mm-hmm. say, sorry, I, you know, I've rethought. Um, you have to, you have to, you know, say, this is my ledger, judge me on it. And I've always taken that view in writing on TV and in every place I'm asked about it. You know, this is part of my ledger. And if you think it's wrong, then you think I was wrong about it. Uh, of course, back then Tucker Carlson was also an advocate of those wars and in much more ferocious terms than ever I was. I mean, in racialized terms, in contemptuous terms, in terms that welcome civilian casualties, in terms that endorse torture. Um, and uh, and he was doing that until deep into the Obama administration. And then another path opened up and he reversed it. And, and, and then said somehow he is going to create this fiction about who he is by um, maligning everybody who was, who was both more intelligent about what they said, but who's also been braver in the years since by saying we are going to, I mean, Paul Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz and others, they, they said, we're, you know, we're living with this. If you think we were wrong, then you think we were wrong. We're not, we're not going to try to um, duck out the back door. Um, and Tucker's belief is if he just throws enough dust and sm- smut into the air, that he can slip out the back door. And, so- um, it's cowardly and shameless. Well, what's interesting about this is, as, as you point out, um, you know, and I had kind of forgotten about this, is that is that back in the day, Tucker Carlson was was in fact a a really, as you put it, ferocious advocate of both of those wars, and and he really was kind of blood for thirsty. And I remember remember that radio broadcast description of Iraqis as semi literate primitive monkeys yeah. came out in twenty eighteen. Now that was that was earlier, and, and I think. You know, and he enjoys torture without regard to. I mean, sure. like long after, um, you know, the consensus view was that um, what had happened in two thousand and three was an over a panicky overreaction that it was counterproductive, um, it was shameful, and you know, and and after John McCain, who was also a target of Tucker Carlson's hatred, um, after John McCain led the fight to say we must not use these methods, they you know they don't work, and even if they do, we shouldn't use them. Um, Carlson was was enjoying it for the sheer pleasure of watching another human being suffer. That, at least that was his radio persona. He played the part. But be, but I, I think he takes the view, look, um, if I am cast as a cowboy in one movie and as right. a prospector in another movie, that doesn't mean I was ever really a cowboy or ever really a prospector. I can be all the village people. Um, it's not who I am. I, I, you know, I take off my stage makeup and go home and, and, and watch baseball. 
So you, you, you wrote the other day, we all rethink, we all evolve, but even as we change, we carry our responsibility for our personal histories along with it. At least I believe that, not Tucker Carlson. To Carlson, it's all just sounds and images on a box to be spoken, then forgotten. Say one thing today, the opposite tomorrow. Urge a war on national television, then disavow it afterwards as if it had nothing to do with you. It's cynical, uh, but it's cowardly. And you're basically saying this is this is what he is. He is like a one man TV special effect. Yeah, this he's kind of a new creature in some ways to understand the role that he plays. That there there is no past, there is no consistency. It is just today. It is just the special effect, and yeah. the consequences may be deadly and may be massive for the culture and democracy. But guys like Tucker Carlson just don't care, really, do they? I, I think his, his immediate predecessors. I mean, I think Rush Limbaugh was playing a part. Mm-hmm. Bill O'Reilly was for sure playing a part. But they played the same part. Um, they were like the actors on Gunsmoke or some long-running TV special. Um, you, you watch them age in place, but you know they were still the patriarch at the ranch or whatever the part was. <laughs> they played the same role you know, regularly for a long period of time. So much so that probably parts of the role actually adhered to them. That, that Rush Limbaugh, the man, became Rush Limbaugh the radio character to some degree. Or it, it, um, you know, one, one of the things that um, I often say about this is that hypocrisy is a very rare human vice because it takes a lot of um, mental energy to believe one thing and say a different thing. Uh, that the hypocrite eventually collapses because um, most people don't have the discipline to be like Iago to like say I you know I know Othello is innocent and I say he's guilty mm-hmm. um, uh, or I know sorry I know Desdemona is innocent and I say she's guilty right, most right. people if they, they say Desdemona is guilty often enough they come to believe it and but I think what the, Car- Carlson is that rare person because he's so empty on the inside unlike O'Reilly in a Lim- Limbaugh that he he can play a different character and you saw that with his role on the virus. Um, that uh, early on in March of 2020, he was one of the few people on Fox News to say, this may be something serious. Literally three weeks later, he reversed himself and became then the leading COVID denier. He's been an anti-vaxxer all this this month. I would not be even slightly surprised if um, one day Lachlan Murdoch walks into his office and says, "Um, look, we've been hearing from Time Warner uh, they're really upset. We may lose our access to Time Warner cable networks if you keep this up. Please stop. And then just bang, it stops. And it never happened. And it never happened. It never happened. So let's talk about this because we talked about Elise Stefanik. We're talking about Tucker Carlson, people who have you know remade themselves or saying the opposite of what they said before. Um, let's talk about, though, like you and I have changed our minds on things. We have evolved. You, you, you mentioned that we all rethink, we all evolve. So what's the distinction between people who just change their minds over time versus the people who do these kinds of, of changes? Because they would look back and say, well, who are you to say yeah. uh, about consistency? Because you you haven't been consistent over over the years. I, I, I certainly haven't been. Well, I, I, I think I, I try to be consistent, but I'm going to admit I, I look back and think I was wrong about this. I was wrong about that. Um, how, is, how is that different from the Elise Stefanics and the, and the Tucker Carlson's of the world? Um, I have a spot on my website called Second Thoughts. Where mm-hmm. I've gathered a bunch of articles about things I've changed my mind about. Um, and I'll give you an example. One of the, I wrote an article called I Was Wrong About Same-Sex Marriage. And mm-hmm. in that article, I recapitulate my history in the 1990s, writing a lot of things against same-sex marriage. 
I explain why I thought that at the time. Uh, I explain how later evidence contradicted me. That the thing I was worried about was that um, same-sex marriage would have a feedback effect on the legal institution of marriage in a way that made uh, um, that, that that caused marriage the marriage bond to deteriorate. I explained why I, I decided that was wrong. In fact, what happens? We didn't have same-sex marriage, and the marriage bond deteriorated anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and and you saw the collapse in marital stability and the decline in marriage. Even you know it had nothing; they were completely separate. And then I and then my conclusion was: since it has no impact on the stability of marriage as a whole, and since it makes a it makes a real difference to meaningful human beings, to real human beings, um, I, I've rethought. And 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 then the whole thing is there. And and. And if you want to be mad at me for what I wrote in 1998, you have permission to do it because I'm not pretending it didn't happen. I said, that's okay. what I was. That's, this is what I thought in 1998. Here's why. Judge me on that. Here's why I changed my mind in the uh, 2000s. Here's how I came out the other end after uh, 2008. Um, here's the record. It's all here. Um, and it's like my own personal blockchain. Uh, so, and I've done that with, with other things. And, and then there are issues where, you know, as with- so, um, so you're willing to take responsibility for what you said before, acknowledge it, and then talk about why you made that mistake or you, you think you were wrong and why you've changed your mind as opposed to this just flip the switch, turn the, the dial approach where it never happened. I was one person then, and now I'm going to pretend to be somebody completely yeah. different. That, there, there's a real distinction there. That I hope people I'll understand. Blame other people who did the same thing I did um, a, as a way of, of um, distracting. I'll give you another example of something, um, a, a thing in my personal history. So here's something I did not change my mind about. Um, I was from the 1990s always very worried about the science of climate change and greenhouse gases. Um, but I knew that that was a real career wrecker uh, in the conservative world. Right. Um, and so I worked on that issue in a lot, lot of ways that were quiet. Uh, and uh, within the Bush administration, and, and there was a little caucus of us who, who tried, Bush had, in, had endorsed in the campaign of 2000, some kind of approach to climate change. Um, he, he, and there was a real battle in, the, in 2001 and 2002 as to whether or not he would make good on that promise. And there, were, there was a little node of people who urged him. And I was, you know, I, I, I did a lot of work with that, that small group. Um, we ultimately lost. I left the administration in 2000, in 2002. Um, and then I began writing about it publicly in 2004. Now, at that point, I didn't talk about the things I'd done between 1992 and 2004, because it seemed like, you know, betraying the confidence of, of friends and allies. But a time came where, you know, it was 10 years later, 12 years later, I, okay, you can, I can talk about it. I can talk about what happened then. And I can also do my own advocacy. So that's a, so there, there are views one had where I had them in private or like guns. I've always had the same view on guns, but I didn't talk about it much before 2013. And I talked about it more after 2013. Um, and I've talked, and I've talked in public about why I didn't more with the guns and with the climate, um, why I didn't speak about this before 2013, why I'm speaking about it now. The point is, if you're going to take a public stance and you do change your mind or as or appear to change your mind, as I appear to change my mind on guns by not talking about it and then talking about it. Not that anyone is super interested in you, but you owe an account. You, it has to be on the record why I did this. Well, and that's why you have the conversation. You know, I was thinking as, as I was listening to you, though, the, the, the intellectual history of 
civilization uh, is, is filled with examples of people who have changed their minds. And and there's also a, the reverse tendency that you often see of people who say that if you were once wrong, um, we are, there's no redemption whatsoever. There's there, there's some of this on I think of the woke uh, Twitter verse about uh, you know Liz Cheney that uh, we she can't be heroic now. We're not going to support her now because we disagreed with her in the past. As if there is no redemption, there's no growth. Nobody ever changes their mind. Um, I kind of wonder how Twitter would have dealt with St. Paul, uh, the story, um, or the the uh, the the composer of Amazing Grace, who used to be a slave trader, uh, or or Abraham Lincoln, who once liked the idea of, uh, of of colonizing blacks before the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, or all of the the anti-communist, uh, all the you know former communists who became anti-communists. You know, history is just filled with yeah. people who have changed positions and, you know, for sincere reasons and have made a tremendous difference. But there is this often th- this tendency that if you were once wrong, you must always be wrong. That's even that. I think what I would say to people on, on the woke left who take this view, or the, the people on the truly woke left the, on the real left, they hate her because they're, they actually prefer Trump to Biden. Um, and so, they're 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 actually doing they're acting quite r- tactically rationally um, that uh, you know the, the the Glenn Greenwalds I mean they they have valid internally consistent reasons for preferring Trump to to Biden and so of course they hate Cheney. Um, you're, 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 we're not talking about all the woke. You're talking about the Glenn Greenwalds who yeah, I this kind of um, he makes my head hurt. I yeah Matt that Matt the pe- the people basically who, who say my the the touchstone of my politics is my belief that America is a force for evil in the world and my hatred of American power. And therefore, I become a kind of anti-nationalist, that I become a, a kind of, you know, my country is always wrong. Therefore, anybody who opposes my country is by definition right. Um, and my worst enemies inside politics are those who stand up for American power and strength, like Liz Cheney. And because Donald Trump is daily sabotaging American power and strength for different reasons than I would wish to see them this person says, uh, but at least I know he is an enemy of the things I hate. He is sabotaging <laughs> the things I hate. Um, uh, but here, here's the thing I say to people on the sort of more moderate side who, who oppose Liz Cheney. The whole story of politics is it's an exam where the questions perpetually change. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you have to be ready for all the time is that uh, people you disagreed with Went on an issue when that issue seemed the most important issue in politics, you will discover you agreed with when other issues become like many. You use you cited the example of Lincoln. Many of the most passionate supporters of the Union cause in the 1860s had been some of the most bigoted anti-Catholics in the mm-hmm. 1850s. So when the issue in 18 in, in the American North, when the issue was what are we going to do with all of these Irish immigrants who are arriving because of the horror of the terrible famines of the late 1840s, and there are all kinds of people who were then who um, behaved who reacted appallingly to this influx of starving people who have contributed so much to the United States, um, and they were Lincoln's enemies. I mean, Lincoln wrote a famous letter about you know um, those who today we read the Declaration of Independence to exclude Catholics. Um, but those know-nothings often became staunch unionists, and they were often staunch anti-slavery people. And would anybody in 1863 have said, "I, you know, I don't want your support for the Union in 1863 because of what you wrote about Catholics in 1851"? 
That would be crazy. And it wasn't that they changed their mind. They remained bigoted anti-Catholics. Mm-hmm. It was just that issue had become less salient and new issues had come to the fore. And um, and this is the story of politics. I mean, you often you know, find yourself working with people. You know, uh, to, I mean, I, I have very friendly relationships today with people um, who, with whom I was on the other side on the Clinton impeachment in the 1990s. Yeah. And it's not that either of us have changed our minds. Um, I, I still think that, you know, Bill Clinton really did perjure himself and really did organize other people to commit perjury. And even though the underlying cause was kind of trivial, um, and even though maybe it was best for America that the impeachment lost, it was what happened then was, was serious. And I, I, you know, don't recant what I, uh, I mean, maybe it, the tone could have been more controlled, but I don't recant what I, and they don't recant they, their belief that, you know, we were out to get them and it was unfair. It's just that it, we're not dealing with that issue now. We have other issues to deal with. And so we can work together on the issues of today. Yeah. There, there's, there's a book that I, I, I've only half read on the title, but I, I always keep it on my desk, the importance of what we care about. And because I, I do find myself, and I'm glad you, you brought this up because I do find myself thinking, okay, I haven't really changed my mind about, you know, these three issues. I just don't care about them anymore. I just, you know, it's just, and I almost feel embarrassed to say that. It's just like I used to be passionate about these issues. What was the marginal tax rate? And today, I they doesn't feel that salient. To Salt me, too. You know? So yeah, exactly. Yes, I, I. This was something that you know I would have gone to the wall uh, on, on at one time, and now it's like no, I, I, I don't. I and I confess, I just don't care. I care about different things, more you know, different issues or are front and center, and so your attitude and your priorities and your alliances are going to shift, aren't they? There's a story of an old 19th century joke about a young man approaching a senior statesman of. British politics to say, can I ask you, I've just come across this and I'm, I'm baffled. What was the Schleswig-Holstein question? <laughs> and the senior statesman says, young man, only three people on earth have ever understood the Schleswig-Holstein question. One was Prince Albert, and he is dead. The other was a German professor, and he has gone mad. And the third was myself, and I have forgotten all about it. Yeah, I mean, there are some things we we don't forget about, but it is it is kind of amazing, you know. And that's one of the the problems of of, of reading history is to go back and and to get yourself uh, immersed again in what the emotions of the time were and things that seemed so clear, so bright, and so passionate. People felt so passionate about. Now you look back and go, okay, really, why did you care so much about that? And I I I, I, I try I try to sort out what, what we're going to say in the future. Sorry? Even when you understand it, yeah. like, um, it was a little before my time, but um, the, you know, I dearly wish the United States had won the Vietnam War and that we had preserved a free and non-communist South Vietnam. That failed. That failure should not stop us in the 2020s from working cooperatively with Vietnam as it is now, right. which is going to become a very important strategic partner of the United States against China. Um, and, you know, and we have seen lots of examples of, of people like John McCain, old, people who suffered so terribly in that war, at the hands of, of the um, worst behavior of the North Vietnamese communists as they then were, working to create diplomatic relations between the United States and Vietnam. I mean, old soldiers understand this, that the person who was on the, the, the per, maybe sometimes the only person who understands what you went through is the person who was shooting at you. Yeah. And, and, and even though they feel differently about it now. So speaking of issues that are 
you know that that have we've we've evolved on. I wanted to check back with you on how you feel the Biden administration is handling the border issue, which you know felt like it was a major crisis a few weeks ago. Maybe it's a little bit calmer now, but you've written some very very direct um, uh, articles about the need for Democrats, people like Biden, to get the border right because if they don't. America will look to, I think you describe them as they will look to the fascists yeah. to, to uh, secure the border. So give me your take on what's going on with that issue right now. Um, I, I think it continu- the spotlight is a little off it right now, yeah. um, but the issue is going to uh, continue to accumulate. Because here, here's the problem. Um, the American economy, we had a bad jobs report for this past month, but the American economy is on the verge of a super hot 2021 and 2022. And uh, there's going to be hiring. The labor market is going to suck in people. Um, And meanwhile, there are lots of Americans who've been out of work for a long period of time, and that makes them less attractive to employers. So employers are going to be very eager for new kinds of labor. And meanwhile, the rest of the world is recovering from COVID rather more slowly than the United States. And that's especially true in in, um, South America. COVID has been a disastrous thing. and is, um, So you're going to have this enormous intake of labor in the United States and this enormous exodus of labor out of South America. Um, and we also now have this problem, which is the asylum system, which was created after World War II to deal with victims of Nazi and communist persecution, has become a whole backup immigration system hmm. for for millions of people. The asylum system was designed to deal with a few thousand cases a year. And now it's being asked to deal with millions of cases a year of people who want to move to the United States to work um, and who've discovered in asylum the way to do it. And you're going to have these, these continuous pressures. And um, one of the, the Biden people are very mentally conservative about this issue. They still, they still think that asylum is about dealing with Anne Frank's family. And they, they are not ready to think of it. This is actually the main way that millions of people all over the world now intend to come to the United States if they can. And uh, and so they're going to have the, and, and the United States is a job magnet and South America is a job, um, is a labor propellant. And these things are all going to come together in ways that need new kinds of thinking. And that's going to be very challenging for them. And it's going to be one of the, um, once this kind of, I, I think that the hundred days of the first uh, were kind of overture, getting shots into arms. After the hundred days, initiative begins to drift away from an administration. It becomes much more sensitive or responsive to things that other people are doing than things it wants to do. It's going to have a military collapse in Afghanistan, very possibly. It's going to have an escalating confrontation with China, especially if um, the stories about the China lab turn out to be true. And it's going to have these immigration pressures and maybe inflation. And all of these things are going to be external challenges and they have to deal with them. And they still think they're in command of the situation. And they're not. They won't be. Because you never are. That's not a criticism of them. Admit you <laughs> Lincoln, as Lincoln said, I do not pretend to have controlled events, but freely admit that events have controlled me. Now, speaking of, of reevaluating things, I remember when you and I spoke back in 2017 after your book came out about uh, the, the growing authoritarianism of, of, of Trumpism and, and the way that, that a lot of the um, uh, you know, sophisticated critics said, well, look, this is overstating it. Uh, this is not something to be that concerned about. And for several years continued that argument that, look, you see, we haven't – the institutions have held up uh, to, to Donald Trump. Uh, all of these concerns – were overstated. I wonder how you're feeling about this right now. And I mean more prospectively, 
watching what's happening with the election laws in Florida and Texas and Georgia, um, this sort of slow motion transformation of the Republican Party into being most passionate about the issue of, of, you know, quote unquote, voter integrity, which is the euphemism for restricting access to the ballot box. And, 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 and whether or not you think that it's overstating it to think that that uh, January 6th may have been a rehearsal rather than a one one off. Well, you've, you've said it just now very, very well. Um, you know, the United States has seen before um, political parties that are doubtful about the value of democracy. Um, and that's the story of the Southern Democratic Party from Reconstruction until the 1960s. Hmm. And I, I worry that the Republican Party is evolving into that. And Donald Trump will eventually pass from the scene one way or another. And so a lot of his peculiarities, I mean, the overt corruption, the overt moving money from the public treasury into his personal pocket, that that probably won't continue. But it was interesting that Republicans had no way, no language to protest that. I mean, a lot of people could have said, as, as Steve Bannon sometimes said, you know, I, I'm with you on the racism, Mr. Trump, but but the stealing, you know, <laughs> is, is it possible to have the racism without the stealing? Yeah. Could we just stick to the racism, please? Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, and so I, I think you are seeing, I mean, a Republican Party that one of the reasons they've been so silent in these early days of the Biden administration is you know, they talk about Biden's extremism, but they ultimately don't care very much about they don't, the fiscal no. issues. Um, the, you know, di- there's a lot of spending, there are a lot of deficits, and Republicans really aren't interested in that. They're, they're much, as Tucker Carlson, they're much more upset about cat cafes in Austin than they are about the largest um, uh, s- stimulus spending in the history of, of the United States, bigger than anything FDR did, bigger than anything Obama did. And Republicans are largely silent. Yeah, cat the, the, cafes, the, the, that's what's on their mind. Yeah, the, the the real threat of the cat cafes and the what the gender studies department at Cornell or whatever. No, I was watching uh, Biden yesterday giving the speech in Louisiana, which was I mean, he's got that low affect, but he's sort of going through you know the creation of jobs and you know you know putting hard hat workers back to you know back on the back on the job. And I'm thinking that you know there's a reason why the Republicans don't really want to be talking about this right now. First of all, they don't, as you point out, they don't care about it. And he really has sort of stolen a march on them because, you know, they were not against infrastructure. And the idea of fixing the country and building the country is going to appeal to a lot of folks. But there is a real disconnect, isn't there? I mean, because the Democrats think that their job is governing and the Republicans think their job is sort of just stoking these these fears about, you know, Cornell's African-American studies department or whatever it is that that, uh, Tucker was ranting about. Well, notice something else, that Biden is willing to play the game on his opponent's part of the field. And he went to Louisiana to talk about those things. Hmm. Donald Trump, and one of the reasons, one of, one of the signs of the hmm. Republican Party internalizing its minority status and therefore internalizing the need to stop people from participating because it can't win. Uh, Donald Trump talked a lot about urban disorder. He could have gone to parts of California. He could have gone to San Diego and talked about that in a way that would have resonated. San Diego, California has a real public order problem. And there are people in California who really care about that. But he never played on the opponent. But he accepted we're a minority party. Um, and that's one of his legacies to his party is, is um, we, you know, we accept like this um, bourbon Democrats of the 50s were a minority party. And our strategy is not appealing to anybody who disagrees with us, but preventing the people from who disagree with us from participating in politics. 
Yeah, no, that's that seems to be um, that that seems to be the argument that no one is involved in in persuasion anymore or conversion. It's just simply uh, doubling down on your own base. Which um, at some point we ought to have a conversation about what's happened to language in this current age. That that maybe the degradation of language is because nobody feels the need to make actual arguments or to persuade anyone anymore. So why do you need complete sentences or paragraphs or anything, <laughs> anything that is lucid or close to being eloquent because nobody's going to change their minds. Nobody's going to try to change their minds. Uh, David Fromm, thank you so much for coming back on Always the podcast. And thank by you. the way, and, th- and congratulations uh, on the vaccination. I hope you and your wife enjoy your weekend. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.